Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you very much for joining me. Today, we're joined by Professor Mark Evans, who is Director of Democracy 2025, and he is the former Director of the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis, or IGPA, as it's known, at the University of Canberra. Mark has an outstanding and distinguished career in developing high-quality, values-driven knowledge institutions that really look to policy impact and professional development programs. And he's done an enormous amount of work, and I won't go, I won't list it all now, but an enormous amount of work, not only here in Australia, but with governments around the world. And interestingly, he worked with Content Group last year on a research project. And we're going to today talk a little bit about that research project, but also to talk about Democracy 2025 to understand what his next great challenge is and how he is going to help to build greater trust in democratic institutions, not only to 2025, but hopefully a long way beyond that as well. He joins me in the studio this morning. Uh, Professor Mark Evans, thanks very much for joining us on GovComs. I'm delighted to be here. Mark, the research project that we started last year, people who listen to the project would know that we've d- developed an approach which is really all about government being better, better storytellers, being better able uh, to explain policies, programs, services, regulations, so as that people can understand the reasons for why those decisions have been made. We then worked, that, that was work that was done with the Australian National University to put that in place. But interestingly, we then worked with you, and I remember presenting a, a prototype of our approach, and you very quickly looked at this and said, this is not just for communications people. This should really go to the heart of how policymakers go about thinking about audiences and thinking about communities before um, they even start to think about the way that they're going to develop policy. Why is it that you you saw it that way? Or what was the insight that you were working off when you, you saw that this need for better storytelling and better communication was in fact a policy challenge every bit as much as it was a communication challenge? Well, uh, two two key reasons, really. First of all, as we all know, uh, communication is the oxygen of every organisation, whether it's um, public or or private. And the the most effective organisations in the world are those that are able to communicate their um, ideas and messages clearly to their their target audiences. Um, And let's face it, um, public organisations haven't really been very good at that, um, particularly over the last decade, particularly since the end of the Howard period, you know, you could argue that successive prime ministers have failed to get their big ticket items up, Um, you know, despite the fact that Malcolm Turnbull was um, a very popular prime minister in many ways. 
maybe his his major vulnerability was his, was his inability to to connect up effectively with everyday Australians. You know, mm. he was kind of the darling of the chattering classes, um, but he didn't really connect up with everyday Australians. So, so first of all, the, there's a fundamental problem there um, with public organisations being able to win the war of ideas. You know, and actually acknowledge that increasingly they are involved in a complex war of ideas. So that's the first one. The second reason, though, is that um, if you think about any, any sort of reform programme or process that's been introduced um, in Australian government and, and actually in other Westminster democracies over the last three decades, there's always this tendency to create a little unit over here, you know, a, uh, an innovation unit or a reform unit or a strategic communications unit. Um, and a failure to mainstream those ideas into the DNA of the organisation. And for me, that's what's happened with strategic communication. There's been this tendency to say that strategic communication is purely the role of the information unit over here or this particular person in an organisation. When, um, as you rightly say, um, we're all content developers in public organisations and we really need to mainstream this thinking in, in everything that we, that we do. And in particular, there was a major problem when you look at policy development. Um, I mean, again, going back to that original observation about prime ministers being able to get up there big ticket items, well, that goes to the very heart of how they, they design policy. They haven't designed policy with a key understanding of the key messages and frames needed to win the war of ideas, mm. even when there's been an obvious um, win. I mean, if you, if you look at the failure to get up uh, the mining tax, for example... You know, we all know that Australia, with Saudi Arabia, is the only country in the world that pays the private sector to, to extract um, our resources out of the ground for no, for no payment, right? And, but it was the, the whole policy frame there was won by the mining industry, which was, which was around, this will destroy communities, we will lose jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, when you quantified the number of jobs vis-a-vis -vis the benefits that could have been accrued through a mining tax. I mean, let's face it, they have it in Alaska, and every kid gets a free, free university education, gets, gets free master's education if they, if, if, if they achieve to that level. The idea that we, we, we didn't take advantage of that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in Australia, for me, mm. was fundamentally a failure of politics and strategic communication. So why is it that there is that disconnect and there isn't that mainstreaming that you talk about around the importance of communication. Why doesn't it sit at the heart of everything that policymakers do when they're developing policy for government? Um, well, A, they've not really been, been, been trained to think that way. Um, so it is, it is interesting, and this is a problem in the UK as well. If, if you look at the United States and you look at the big schools of government... Um, and uh, the, particularly the postgraduate qualifications that you would do at any of, you know, the Kennedy School at Harvard or whatever, um, communications would be a core subject. Right. Right? Um, it's not here in Australia, right? Uh, in in Westminster-style democracies in general, there's been this tendency to bypass 
communications. It's like a, an add-on that you do. It's not it's not part of the the core curriculum. Mm. So I think I think I think that's a, a, a key dimension to it. I mean, there has been kind of an inverted snobbery as well, right? I mean, I remember you know in one of my former um, jobs, I, I worked for a while with um, with Tony Blair, um, and. Uh, you know, Blair was well known um, through um, Alistair Campbell. Yes. Um, th- that's that's when the the phrase "spin" yes um, came to the fore. Um, but actually, I mean, I, I worked closely in that government, and for me, that wasn't spin. What they were trying to do was mm. to win the war of ideas, mm. right? They 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 knew that ideas were important, and they also knew that it was absolutely fundamental to capture the public imagination through the twenty four seven media cycle. Um, and Campbell knew how to do that, but of course, it was diagnosed as spin. It was kind of viewed as kind of the murky, mucky world of 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 government, rather than America. It was viewed as a core discipline in public affairs. Mm. So, so I think there's a there's a different sort of uh, kind of cultural tradition in Westminster style democracies when compared with with other democracies. Mm. But we're now waking up to that fact. Well, that's indeed. You um, designed a, a graduate certificate course in content communication and public policy. Uh, what? What was that design and, and what were the elements of that course that you were putting together and what are you hoping to achieve with that outline of the course that you have developed? Um, well, obviously, that was that was very much a partnership between um, us and Content Group. Yeah. Um, so, you no, know, you really um, enlightened me to the broader discipline of, of content development, mm. right? So I think I have to say that at the beginning. Um, I came into this really as somebody who uh, has acted as a senior policy advisor and, of course, has been an academic um, studying policy development. Um, So straight away, I I saw the importance of content communication in terms of framing policy design um, from ideas right the way through to to delivery of of policy through projects and programs into, into the community. That before... A minister um, makes any announcements. The, the the clarity of the message in terms of the the, the impacts, positive and potentially negative, on society have been very clearly calculated and determined. Mm. Um, and the idea that you you need to have obviously a whole range of different. Um, I call them policy instruments for, for delivering your message. Um, you obviously have to have a very clear sense of, um, of strategic focus and strategic design to, to how you design um, a content community strategy to underpin a major intervention. Um, and obviously, increasingly, as we know, there's no one audience. So that's another really important sort of insight that mm. we all know about the complexity of modern government. There's no one audience. Yeah. Um, our role, really, as policy designers is to understand how an intervention will affect different audiences in different ways um, and to develop mitigating strategies to deal with sometimes the potential fallout where you actually have to convince a group that, mm. yes, you're going to take a loss with this particular intervention, mm. um, sometimes um, creating um, a softener, yep. right? Um, or sometimes 
um, a, appealing to their sense of of fairness or, or fair go um, to actually say, well, look, this is this is more than just me. This is about improving the quality of our society more more generally. Um, so there's a discipline to that, isn't there, David? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think there's the complexity and the mm. the. The, this is the, the the increasing challenge I think for government to communicate is that they now communicate in a in a world that is far more contested than it's ever been before and mm. and the challenge to get people's attention and to earn the right to a share of that time and attention so as that they will stop long enough to listen to an argument um, when there is just so much choice as to where people put their time and attention I think you mentioned you know Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair. It was very different back then. That was before, you know, the mobile phone has taken over. Um, that was before there was just this proliferation of channels and social and other things. How much difficult or how much more difficult do you see that it is now for policymakers and for communicators in government now that it is such a complex world in which they communicate? Um yeah, look, I think you're right to say that we are we are in a different era. Although what I would say about um, the Blair period is, you know, British politics is even is is even more complex because of the Europeanisation yeah. um, dimension. Um, so when we're talking about media, we're talking about you know the European media. You mm-hmm. know, um, so so in a sense, um, they they ha- they had to be more sophisticated mm. earlier on. Perhaps certainly, it, yes, it's it's, yeah. it's a larger beast. Um, yeah, it's a larger it, beast, <laughs> much larger yeah. beast. Um, but but, cer- but now, certainly, the world is definitely more complex now in terms of well, particularly the impact of social media. Yeah. Um, and um, and obviously, it creates a number of of big puzzles for government, doesn't it? Um, how does it cope with the noise? How does it make sense of the noise? Now, um, I mean, this is something that we focus on um, a lot in relation to the work that we're we're doing on trust because obviously traditionally Westminster-style um, bureaucracies um, were underpinned by the principle of being seen but not heard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, um, having departments of state speaking up in defence of a policy or... Um, intervening to to deal with fake news um, is not viewed to be in line with the conventions of the Westminster model, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's clearly absurd now. That that can't go on, because um, if the if the Australian Public Service, right, doesn't um, stand up for its own policies, then who's going to? Mm. There's nobody. Nobody else is going to leap to their defence. Mm. You know, maybe some of the more sort of enlightened. Um, um, upmarket um, newspapers might do from time to time, but look, the, the, the point is, is that we are in a different era now, and the, and you know, and I've and I've made this point to the Thode review um, in our submission by 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 IPA, um, and that is that the the APS needs to win hearts and minds. It needs to engage with fake news. It needs to engage in better storytelling about the the great work that it does. Mm. Because if it doesn't do that, then it's going to be a a pawn in a very complex game of of chess. Mm. But I think it needs to do that um, using kind of uh, keep it simple Mm. um, type principles um, and that is all about um, evaluating risk um, in an effective way, um, but at the same time, 
um, being aware of the dangers of risk aversion. Because another, another key thing that's happened because of the declining, um, declining trust in, in government and politicians is that, you know, traditionally people would say the public service is risk averse. Yes. Right? Now the, the dominant view is, well, actually it's politicians that are risk averse. Politicians are risk averse because they cannot cope with the complexity of the, um, the noise, as we call it, on the 24-7 media system. Mm. Right, And because of that, they don't grapple some of the big fundamental public policy problems that we're confronting and what Australian citizens want them to, con to, to, to confront. Mm. In fact, increasingly, they're sort of absolving their responsibility to other um, forms. I mean, the, obviously, the postal vote on same-sex marriage, I mean, one theory was that it was, it was a great strategic... Um, um, victory for, for, for Turnbull. Another view, what, and this comes up a lot in the focus groups that we, that we do, is that this was parliamentarians absolving themselves mm. from, the, from a responsibility um, to engage in courageous leadership, mm. you know? So, um, so look, I suppose what I'm, what I'm saying there is that, um, unfortunately, um, decision-making has become even more... Um, problematic because of this kind of vicious cycle of, of distrust, mm. um, uncertainty, and risk aversion. Mm. Um, so for me, the light here is, well, how can we use strategic communication to actually break through? Yeah. To break through that, that vicious yeah. Circle. Well, I, I tend to I completely agree with you. I think, you know, if you're not going to tell your story, someone will tell it on your behalf yeah. or someone will have a view or many, many people will have a view. Mm. And unless you are turning up consistently, regularly, in simple terms, explaining to people, well, these are the decisions that we've taken uh, and the reasons for that, mm. that you've, you know, you're... You're, ne you're never going to get the message across. You're, mm. you're never going to explain. So that then comes to the issue of then capability mm. uh, inside uh, government to be able to explain. Uh, what's your views on, on that capability? Does it exist? Uh, uh, do, do the skills and capability and awareness, do they exist such that governments can uh, prosecute exactly what you're talking about by being able to create useful, relevant, consistent content to engage and connect with audiences in order that they can understand? Um, OK, there's a number of ways we, in which we can approach that question. Um, one would be to say, well, um, the problem is, is that the existing orthodoxy, right, is a command and control orthodoxy. Yeah. And what we're talking about here is is basically a new way of of of, in, of a new form of engagement which involves a broader range of people in the organization it involves empowering people mm. um, to convey the the mm. message right mm. and um so look <laughs> the problem that we have with the australian public service and again this has come up uh, this will definitely come up in the third a review is the problem of hierarchy yeah right um and how actually this this new form of engagement requires opening up the system of government. Um, it, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't make um, calculations on the basis of um, sound risk assessment. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that, that continues. But basically, this is about power with responsibility, empowerment with responsibility. Um, and that's a new way of working, mm. right? So it's going, to, it's going to require a culture shift. There's no doubt about that. Secondly, in terms of capability, well, actually, you know, my view is that we don't really use the brain of our public service effectively anyway, right, because of hierarchy. Um, you know, over the last 10 years, I've spent a lot of my time um, training graduates in the APS. Um, you know, I see them five or six years later. Some of them have been lucky and are doing jobs that they're interested in motivate them. A lot of them are really just in it still for the lifestyle. They don't think that their um, expertise is, is being used effectively. They're engaged in running processes of government with, with, with very little um, concrete outcome, right? right? So they don't find it particularly thrilling work, right? So I actually think that within the public service, there is a cadre hmm. of, of people who get social media, who get... I mean, they are a younger generation, yeah. you know. The fact of the matter is that um, people our age aren't going to be running this stuff really in the future. Hmm. Um, well, that's not to say that we can't learn um, learn new skills in term and, uh, um, and, and uh, you know, improve our capabilities. But the other problem, I think, probably with strategic communication is that it's prob in the public service is that it may have been dominated by grey-haired, middle-aged men like me in the past. Mm -hmm. and, and that's that's not necessarily about talking to the right audience, isn't it? Mm -hmm. so, we, so we need a greater diversity in terms of the workforce in order to understand the different channels of communication that will have an impact. I think that there is the capability there, but it needs to be upskilled. Mm. Um, and given permission. And given permission, exactly. <laughs> given permission and, 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 and empowered. Um, but as you also know, um, every sector is now after strategic communication professionals. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a very competitive environment um, for, for those skills. Um, I think we definitely need to build um, strong partnerships, such as the ones that, uh, that we have, yeah. to actually support the public service in, in this endeavour. Um, I'm hoping that a key outcome of the APS review will be um, a, a renewed focus on strategic communication um, and having that holistic approach rather than the segmented, mm. siloed approach um, mm. going forward. Um, and, you know, and from what I hear, that there are some strong messages emerging around, around that. Good. Now, listen, um, just to move to um, just a final question around Democracy 2025 and the work that you're doing at the Museum of Australian Democracy... What are you trying to achieve with Democracy well, 2025? We're trying to avoid um, um, a doomsday for Australian democracy. And that is that, um, as you know, we've been doing... Um, this is our fourth national survey that we launched in Parliament House um, last week, and we, we do ongoing focus groups all over Australia on how Australians imagine and understand their, their democracy. And if current trends continue, no more than 10% um, of Australians will trust their politicians and political institutions. That places Australia... What? Yeah, that's, that's how bad it is. And there's been a, a very steep decade of decline from 2007, where 86% of Australians trusted mm. their politicians and political institutions to 40% today. 
The level of trust in politicians um, rivals that of the social media. It's now down at 20%. Today, it's down at 20%. Trust in politicians and government ministers. Right? In fact, actually, in the survey, there's only actually five institutions that has a rating above 50%. Now, having said that, we know that this is a global phenomenon. Yeah. Right? Um, but even on a global scale, Australia is not doing well, um, especially when you consider that um, the, the countries that are our, our level at the moment are those that were impacted really badly by the global financial crisis. You know, you're talking about the... Uh, the southern Mediterranean states, you know, you're talking about uh, Spain and uh, Italy. Uh, we're just above Greece still at the moment, you know. But but they, their economies were devastated. Yeah. Now, we've had 25 years of economic growth. Mm. So, there's, um, so there's a serious issue um, emerging here, um, largely because trust impacts on the ability of government to actually deal with these big thorny issues mm. because if they don't think that they've got the people with them right they won't take the risk to actually focus on the problem mm. um so you know during that period we can see that we've seen more risk aversion in in, in government more risk aversion with politicians the the most alarming thing that's emerged from our most recent survey however is that social trust has also reached an all-time low so that's the trust that um, Australian citizens have um, in their neighbours and in their communities. It's now down to 47%, right? And um, the, the HILDA survey, which is the big sort of social inclusion survey, um, reported about a month ago. And what that told us was that the gap between rich and poor is getting larger. But most seriously, the gap between the poor and the poorest of the poor has increased very significantly. And what we're seeing really is the, the emergence of, of three kind of new groups of Australian um, in terms of attitudes. One group, roughly about 30% um, of the Australian electorate, are now um, major critics of the two-party system, right? Yeah. And they're looking for new politics mm. and they're voting independent uh, across the ideological, you know, scale from from Hanson to to Phelps, yeah, right. Then there's this a group of about ten percent of Australians who are completely switched off traditional politics. You know, if we didn't have compulsory voting, they wouldn't be voting at all, right? Um, they have absolute disdain for 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 politicians and for contemporary politics. Now, they they tend to be on low incomes. They tend to have the same attitudes um, um, that came in, that voted for, for Brexit and, and Trump, mm -hmm. right? They're feeling left behind and marginalised and profoundly economic and economically insecure. And then you've got this other curious group, which is a tactical group. And, you know, they're, they're not into the, into the two-party system, right? But they're starting to vote tactically in their constituencies because... Their view is that if they vote tactically, they're more likely to get more resources into their mm. into their communities. So anyway, so so what we're seeing is the way in which um, we've shifted decisively now from what we used to call an allegiant democracy, a deferential democracy, which was based upon yep. strong social and political cohesion, mm. to what I call a divergent democracy, 
where increasing numbers of Australians are looking for a new politics. And, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the next election. I mean, obviously, Labour in a position of maximum opportunity at the moment, right? But they're not really responding to the big, to the democratic deficit. Mm. You know, um, I mean, the Republic... Um, I mean, it is interesting that they've, they, they've announced a referendum on the Republic already. Mm. Uh, there's a bit of courage in that, mm. I think, in the run-up to an election. Um, I'm hoping that the parties will start to take this democratic deficit much more seriously. Certainly the Australian Public Service are, um, mm. and they're a key partner in this, in this enterprise. All right. Well, that's a depressing, a depressing note to end our conversation. I sort of, and again, no, no, you know, no. strategic communications might be able to fix a few things, but I don't know it's going to be able to fix. No, there's an optimistic note here, right? So the optimistic <laughs> note in terms of research is that Australians want to see change, and there is a big appetite for change. Yeah. So you know, if you go to to our website, uh, democracy2025.gov.au, you'll see that there's a report. A third of the report is on the reforms that Australians would like to see. See. And also, okay. what we can also see is that Australians remain passionate about democracy and politics. They just don't like this politics. Right. Right. So for me, and that's that's another focus of the work of Democracy 2025. Um, our focus is on well, how can we be the best democracy that we can be? You know, why should we be happy? You know, coming in at number 62, right? Yeah. We should be up there with the best. Yeah. We have the resources. We have the innovation, socially, economically. Um, we have the passion for our future. Um, that dwarfs a lot of other countries. So Democracy 2025 is basically about saying, well, where's the glitter? Where do we need to strengthen Australian democracy? What does international best practice tell us? And how can we be the best democracy that we can be? Well, that's a happy note to finish yeah. on, and that is a great mission. So, Mark Evans, thank you very much for coming in, and we'll get you back in another day to uh, continue the conversation about trust deficits and and how, in fact, we can build that capability so government can better explain themselves to people because I think people can take it if they understand it. But if they don't understand it, that's when things start to go awry. But to you, the audience, thank you very much for coming back once again. To Mark Evans, my guest today, thank you for coming in. And I will be back at the same time in two weeks' time, now that we're on a two-weeks rotation, not a one-week rotation. And, um, yeah, so I'll be back then and I look forward to your company. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.